You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Uh, Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you have uh, brought us together on this Sunday morning. You are kind. Your mercies are new every day. You have not left us to our own devices. You've not left us to sort things out on our own with regard to who you are and your character, with what it is you desire from us. I pray, O oh Lord, that you will give us the wisdom and the clarity to know how to move that into the, the warp and woof of our lives. Lord, I thank you for these friends who are here. Uh, Lord, I know that so many of them are carrying burdens that are spoken and unspoken, and I pray that you will strengthen and encourage them even this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our, this is our last week together, so what I, I'd like to do is spend a little bit of time in review, uh, kind of say where we've gone and wh- where we've been and, and where we are now, and then talk a little bit about some of the pieces that we, we did not get to in the writings. Um, if, if you remember from our, our first week together, for those of you who are here, and I know this isn't a class, so who's taking notes? Um, but I identified the writings in the Old Testament as that, that portion of the Bible that raises the question, what, what do we do? How, how do we live given the complexity of human existence? And again, I, I, I think this is one of the features of the Old Testament that I so value, especially I think as I age for whatever reason. And the, the, the Old Testament doesn't allow you a, any kind of escapist view of the Christian life. Um, there are religions on offer out there for that kind of thing. Um, and there are even streams of the Christian faith um, that are, are kind of stoic in their view of what it means to be a Christian. You, you live into the mean, into the sort of middle of human existence, not, any, not getting overly joyous, not getting overly sad, kind of living in the middle. And that's how one protects themselves from suffering. That's the idea with Stoicism. And, and, the, and the Old Testament just won't allow it. It, there's, it pulses. There's, um, there's, there's blood on the floor. There's, there's loss. There's confusion. There's disorientation. There's elation. <laughs> All of these emotions that we feel in the Bible are, are there. It's why I was reading through a John Donne sermon uh, this week on the Psalms that he presented in the 17th century. Beautiful sermon. The Psalms he, he described as the manna of our souls. I mean, what a great turn of phrase. Now, why, why are the Psalms, as the first book of the writings, the manna of our souls? Because they provide for us a mirror of human existence and all of the complexity and the beauty, uh, the, 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 the storm and the struggle, right? To use that sort of romantic language of what it means to live in human existence. And it does so in light of, and this is what's crucial, the authority, the assumed presence of the law and the prophets. So it's operating in this complexity of human life with a recognition that we've not been left to our own emotional devices, our own best therapeutic instincts, our own best, our own wisdom, without recourse to something outside of ourselves to shape and to govern and to guide our existence as we move through this 
pilgrim life up on a mountain down in a valley three steps forward two steps back we know what this thing is like so this is i think part of the beauty of the writings is the writings have a pulse to them there's a there's a kind of vitality to them because they are um, disarmingly honest with us about what it means to be a follower of the living god because to be a follower of the living god is not um, to get an, a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card for what it means to be really, genuinely human in a fallen world. And we know this. I mean, we, I mean I'm sure you feel this. I do as well. I get to take myself and my body everywhere I go. Seems like I just can't escape it as much as I might like. Um, and, and we know this challenge, right? That I thought that was kind of funny today in Wes's sermon. He's like, you know that crazy neighbor? If you haven't had one, baby, you are the crazy... Oh, the great turn of friends. Oh, that's fantastic, right? Um, and like, yes, that's right. Because we recognize that we, we, we don't always see ourselves clearly. It's very hard to see ourselves clearly, actually. And very hard to have an honest perception of ourselves. It's easy to see others very hard to see ourselves. Welcome to the dynamics of marital life for so many of us. Not, not everyone's married, but for those who are, you know what it's like. You can see things clearly, but it's hard for you sometimes to see yourselves clearly. And this is what the beauty, I, I think the, the beauty of the Bible, especially this portion here called the writings, they help you see yourself. <laughs> the, the, they, they give you a pair of glasses and they say, put these on, and, and let the Bible help bring you into focus to clarify who you are and what your instincts are. And if left to yourself, what you would do. And it helps you see yourself. So I think the writings are, they're special. Um, I mean, th- th- some would argue that the writings are whatever books don't fit in the Law and the Prophets. Again, it's that sort of, the, what, and the rest of the story. Um, but I find the writings to be something very special and very pertinent I mean, they're pertinent for all moments in time, but I feel like they're very pertinent for our moment in time as we are sorting through so many moving pieces within our culture and our moment and our church, just sort of thinking through these things. We need the writings to help us be understand ourselves and human fallenness and what our hopes and joys are and what our ultimate delight is as well. The writings sort of, they press on all of those exposed nerves of our moment. And they do so, I think, with, with beauty and with, and with hope. So we spent uh, our first uh, five weeks together looking at this, this one scroll that's within the writings called the Megalote. And it's interesting, right, when you think about the way in which scrolls function. It's, it's a technology that we don't use. Um, but the way a scroll would function is they were, they were of a certain length. That's why, um, so for example, I, I, in my office, I've got individual copies of the book of Isaiah, an individual book of Jeremiah, an individual book of the minor prophets, um, and they all uh, sort of look the same size. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, and these five small books called the Megalote all fit on the technology of the, of the one scroll. Um, so these, these, this scroll uh, of, the, of, of uh, uh, Ruth, right? Song of Solomon. Am I ringing? A Song of Solomon. Um, and then Ecclesiastes. Then Lamentations. And then the book of Esther. Oh, you're coming to rescue the ring. 
Thank you. Um, you know, yeah, no. It's like I kept hearing myself. It's like it's like when you're talking to someone on the phone and they've got Bluetooth on, and you're like, you, you say something, and then you hear yourself again. That's that's very. I, I like to hear myself once, and that's enough. Um, uh, you turn that down. Thank you so much. Oh, that's better. Can you still hear me? Okay. Um, so what, and this has actually been. I've, I've taught this stuff before in various settings, but this was a bit of a discovery with you all. Um, I, I think there's actually something to. The structure of these five small books on this one scroll, that there's there's this kind of, um, I don't want to get lost in the details here, but a kind of chiasm where you're building sort of toward the middle and then out again so that the outer two books, Ruth and Esther, think of these remarkable women um, within the history of Israel. Uh, one of them, a Moabitess woman, who is the paradigm of the virtuous woman, which in and of itself is an offense to a certain kind of Jewish mindset. The wrong woman is the virtuous woman. Right? Now, but it's, it's Ruth who embodies that kind of dependence and trust on Israel's God to provide for her and for Naomi in a difficult moment. And we go from the desert to the mountaintops with Ruth. We go from the loss of everything. You think to be a, a young woman, especially an older woman in the ancient world with no husband and no male offspring, you are of the most vulnerable. Now, that's hard for us to think of in our world in the same way, but in the ancient world, to be a barren woman with no husband and no potential offspring is ultimate vulnerability. That was Naomi. And that's why Naomi tries to shed herself of her daughter-in-laws because they still have a chance. But Ruth, in a moment of incredible beauty and loyalty, links herself to her mother-in-law and more importantly, to her mother-in-law's God. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And that's the act of faith that we see in Ruth in the midst of what must be a, a um, disastrous experience and moment, she puts all of her hope, all of her confidence in Naomi's God. And they move like the Israelites did from so long ago from the plains of Moab back into Israel to see the Lord provide for them. And, they, and the Lord does in this miraculous way. Um, and so we see by the end of the book of Ruth, Naomi, the destitute barren woman, who in many ways embodies and signifies, figures for us, the destitute and barren woman of Zion, all of Jerusalem, um, who now has an offspring and a child in her arm at the end of the book. It's a testimony to the, the, the incredible and gracious character of God's providence. And if you think about Ruth and Esther as bookends on this scroll together, you have two women that are embodying wisdom. Oh, uh, wisdom, by the way, in Hebrew, this is a, an interesting point, is a feminine noun. Um, Chakmah is the, is the term. I told you all the story, didn't I, about the young man in the hot tub out in the Pelham YMCA that had a Hebrew tattoo on his arm. Did I tell you this story? Young man, I, this was this was about... Eight, eight, nine, ten years ago, I'm sitting in, I'm not chat, I mean, sitting in a hot tub, it's not a chatty moment for me. Um, but, you know, here, here I am, and, and, and this, this young strapping guy gets in, has a Hebrew tattoo on his arm, and, and I, I said, huh, it was Amman. 
I said, um, a faithful one. And he looked at me like, I said, well, don't worry, I, I pay the bills teaching that stuff. And, um, and I said, but I thought I'd have a little fun with him. I said, but I've got, I've got bad news for you. They put the feminine form on your arm. And it wasn't the feminine form. I was just playing with him. He's, and he looked at me like he had been shot. Really? I said, no, no, it's okay. It, it was the masculine form. Um, but the, 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 the point is, hakma is, is a feminine noun. It's lady wisdom. Lady wisdom cries out in the street, we read in the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs, of course, and we'll talk about this a little bit this morning, is another one of these books that's in the writings. So lady wisdom is now personified in Ruth, and in Esther, they're showing us in storied form what real wisdom through the lens of the fear of the Lord looks like. And you remember that sort of beautiful moment in Esther where Esther says, okay, uh, Mordecai just has just laid it on her th- in a very thick way. Perhaps this is the moment for which you were born. Like, like the, 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 the moment of your existence has now come to its ultimate point in time. This is it. So what does Esther do in this moment of, of um, embodied and practical wisdom? She says, everyone pray and fast for three days. We will seek the face of the Lord. And after that, I will do what I will do. And if I live, I live. And if I die, I die. That, again, we're in the, that pulsing feel of the writings. I will trust in God and His providence. I will trust in God and His Word and the promises that He has made. And if I die, I die. And if I live, I live. We will leave that in the hands of the providence of God. So on the bookends of this megalope, of this small scroll, you have Ruth and Esther along with Naomi. These women that are embodying wisdom for us. So many notes to be taking from what they're doing. They're showing us what it is to live in the fear of the Lord. We will trust the Lord. We will live in the light of His being. We will worship Him in abandonment. And we will put everything on the line. You get a sense from Ruth and Naomi and from Esther and these these bookend books that a nominal form of belief is not on offer. Nominal believers don't say things in the face of ultimate danger and threat. If I live, I live. And if I die, I die. Um, I can get a little misty-eyed thinking about this, but just this week at school um, at at Beeson, I've got a young woman who's been in several of my classes. She's, She's a nurse, and later on the Lord sort of called her into some sort of ministry. She spent time as a missionary, and, and uh, she, she's worked hard at school. And she comes into my, my office this week, and she says, I mean, she's just beaming. She's like, I've been accepted by mission, and I don't know, it a mission to the world. It was, um, uh, anyway, some, some mission agency, they've, they've accepted me, and they've placed me to go to Tajikistan. And I, and, I, and I just got, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, she's smiling ear to ear. She's going to go to be a, a medical missionary in Tajikistan, 98% Muslim. She's going to have to sort of fly under the radar about the way in which she goes about talking. Her, she, she, she won't even be able to email back in ways that could out her as a believer in that context. And she's so excited. And here I, I'm no longer the 23-year-old you know, who thinks, go, you know, go and die. Now I'm, I'm a father seeing a daughter. All right, it's a daughter. 
So, so, and I, I, I couldn't help. I asked her. I said, "Okay." I said, "And, and what, a, what a testimony to God's work in your life, and and you're you're putting it all on the line for Him. What, a, what an amazing thing!" And I said, "How are your mom and dad doing?" <laughs> right? I, I, that's my question, right? And they're like, "It's been hard. It's been very hard for them. Um, they understand, but it's been hard." I'm thinking, like, "Okay, right? Here's Esther and 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 uh, and, uh, and Ruth and Naomi, and they're putting it all on the line. It's these women of wisdom." For the Lord, because nominal Christianity, middle of the road Christianity, doesn't produce a generation of martyrs. It doesn't do that. Um, and, I, and I thought, as I was sitting here with my student, like she she understands, she's not naive, um, but here she's going with this medical team to serve Jesus and to build relationships and to share the gospel with people in a place that's dark. And when it comes to a Christian faith and presence, it's a, it's a danger. So I'm thinking like Esther, Ruth, and now my student. These are women of wisdom who are living in the fear of the Lord, recognizing that, hey, if what he says, and th- this is the force of it, if what he says is true, and I, I'm, I wrestle with this too all the time, um, because I like my picket fence and my chickens, right? But if what he says is true, then the call is to a certain kind of um, uh, riskiness, right? In the face of his call, if what he says is true. Now, not, not all of you need to go to Tajikistan, all right? I, I get this. Um, but how, th- this, this sort of exemplar or model of those who live into the reality of God's promises, um, if what he says is true, then we pray and we fast, and then if we live, we live, and if we die, we die. It's, kind of, it's, it's really a, it's a remarkable thing. Um, so you have these two women on the on the bookends of, of the writings. Then you kind of move in, right? And on the inside, uh, outside of and these are heavy books. Ruth and Esther are heavy with the themes. I mean, we just we just got kind of heavy um, with what we talked about. And and then you go to um, sex and suffering. <laughs> Isn't that kind of crazy, right? And that's the writings. I mean, the writings are just they're, they're textured with flesh and with reality. Um, you go to the Song of Solomon, which is on the inside of Ruth, and you go to Lamentations, which is on the inside of Esther, and you're dealing with the height and the depth of human experience. And it's, and it's not by accident that Song of Solomon, uh, the greatest of the songs, uses the, the sexual experience itself, which we all know touches on the transcendent, I was reading C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters this week again. I, I just, I can't get over that. I think Lewis's screw tape letters are genius. I mean, there's a genius about those, those, that, that particular um, approach. And, uh, and again, he's trying to trip up a young Christian and he's like, hey, make them think that sexual relations aren't really tied to the transcendent. That, that's, that's the demon uncle talking to the nephew. Let, let them, let them think that sexual things aren't linked in to the transcendent and the eternal. Then you got them. And that's exactly what Song of Solomon is doing. I mean, Song of Solomon is a book that is, that is intense and it's passionate, um, but it's not sort of reduced you know, to 12 steps to a, more, a, a hotter... It's not the cosmopolitan cover um, of the Old Testament. Uh, you, know, you see these in the public's line like, 12 steps to... What, uh, who reads it? Maybe you all read that. That's okay. Um, uh, it's not that. It's, it's letting you know that this human experience of, of man and woman and their complementarity, the one to the other, in marital sexual relations, 
that that particular event itself touches the divine. It gives you, unlike any other human experience, some sort of instinct and understanding of what it is to be in communion with the living God in an unfettered way. And that's why the Old Testament can't seem to talk about the failure of the relationship between God and His people without using the marriage metaphor. The marriage metaphor is the lens through which God often describes the breakdown of the relationship. Um, uh, and, and he bore, she bore a second son named Loruchamah, no mercy. Not bore him, Hosea, a second son, bore a second son, Loruchamah. And we're horrified because now we know that the wife of Hosea's youth has now become the faithless one who's bearing a child that's not his own. Um, and, and we all sense the breakdown and the hurt. We're vulnerable, right? I mean, you think about marriage as an institution, and you see this in God's relationship to His people as well, marriage as an institution is remarkably strong and fragile at the same time. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's unlike many other things in this world. It's strong and it's fragile. It makes us vulnerable, and it gives us the comfort of fidelity as well. I mean, it's, we, we feel these tensions. And Song of Solomon takes you to the height, and Lamentations takes you to the belly of the earth to let you see what it is to really live in human suffering. And both of those are in the writings. They're the yin and the yang. They come together to form something, to let us know something about what it means to live in human existence. We know what it is to live in the fullness of joy, and we know what it is to live in the fullness of despair. I discovered um, this week, well, over the past few weeks, you ever buy these books? I'm, I'm notoriously bad at this. Matter of fact, you know, I, I should, I should be, um, you all should hold me accountable. I don't really want you to. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the guy that reads the review in the Wall Street Journal and go, that looks great. Amazon purchased, it arrives, and I'll put that on the shelf and read, read the preface. And then, you know, you do it too, Jim. I know you do. Um, well, I, I, uh, I, I, I ordered years ago, Reinald Niebuhr's uh, Gifford lectures on the nature and destiny of man had them on my shelf for years. It's classic. And pulled them off uh, over the past few weeks to read Niebuhr giving us a biblical and reformational doctrine of man. His insight, I'm embarrassed that I haven't engaged it more fully before. Niebuhr's insights into what it means for humanity to be a sinner are absolutely profound. And he, and he speaks about our sinfulness being linked to our human capacity, the uniqueness, this is part of our being made in the image of God, the uniqueness of our human capacity to, to, to lean toward and grasp after the infinite and at the same time be finite creatures. And he identifies sin as the affront against those two factors so think about this. We have a great, this is St. Augustine 101. Our, our hearts are, I wish I was with John Halseywood this morning because he's talking about this for our kids. Um, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We all know that, and again, this is part of Song of Solomon, I think, the transcendence of even a human sexual experience done in, in the faithfulness of the marriage bed, taste of something more. And although that can't be an end, there's got to be more to this. this. This has to be an invitation to something more. We have a capacity and a desire for the infinite. Our hearts are restless until we have rest in Him. 
but we're also finite. So here's the sins, that uh, the two particular sins that Niebuhr lays out for us in relationship to those realities. Our capacity for the infinite, when we lean against that in rebellion, we turn towards sensuality. As we try to find something finite that, um, or material um, that, that cannot live up to the promises of our capacity for the infinite. It's, it's C.S. Lewis's famous claim about uh, children um, playing in the mud, getting all dirty, we're these children, when God has offered us a holiday at the sea. So, so I think Lewis's point was, we're far too easily satisfied. It's not that our satisfaction level is set too high. We're too easily satisfied. We'll play with mud pies as humans and say, isn't this fun when the rocky mountains are around the corner? Um, another image that I've thought about this is, you know, it's like going to the gas station when you've got, you know, the Grand Tetons out there and you get excited about that, that the, the lime Skittles are back. <laughs> Which, by the way, I just learned that yesterday from my younger son. Apple Skittles gone. The lime are finally back. You know, so you're like, that's really exciting. Well, well we're talking about lime Skittles when the ocean's right there, right? I mean, think that, that's, that's our propensity towards sensuality. And, and what about our finiteness? Our, our offense against our finiteness is in our pride. When we claim too much for ourselves. When we think that we're more than what our finite condition actually says about us. And here we have, in this fascinating pairing, we have um, Song of Solomon, which, which gives an invitation to the transcendent, and Lamentations, which lets us know we are rooted in the finite character of human suffering and we cannot transcend it. And then when you move to the middle, it seems like Ecclesiastes has a special position. Um, one, one might even argue a privileged position within the writings. What does Ecclesiastes do? Ecclesiastes gives you this incredibly textured and thick. It's, it's an impasto painting. It's not a thin painting. There's lots of paint that's built up on the canvas of the book of Ecclesiastes to let you know what it means to be a human. And the fact that your, your, your humanity, which you cannot transcend, is a fleeting thing. And that the best of human experiences are caught in the reality of time itself sinking through our fingers, slipping through our fingers, and the essence of whatever event it is, Lamentations or Song of Solomon, themselves cannot be grasped in their fullness. We feel this sort of this need for something more, whether it's wisdom or toil or pleasure. And where does Kohelet, the preacher, leave you? Hey, with the fear of the Lord. Isn't it interesting how, how much this term, the fear of the Lord, plays an operative role in the writings? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, and the end of Proverbs chapter 30 emphasize the fear of the Lord. I mean, one, one could argue that wisdom itself is a kind of human activity of, of the mind, of, of rationality, of, of, of the best of, of human approaches and tendencies to try to sort through what it means to live life well. And, and, and that's one of the things that's fascinating about Proverbs. Proverbs will take wisdom ideas from wherever it can find it. I think about this as a dad. Like, listen, I, I want my, my kids to pick up wisdom from wherever they can find it. But wisdom in the book of Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes is framed through the lens of that religious principle of the fear of the Lord. There's no such thing as independent wisdom in the Bible apart from the fear or the worship of the Lord. 
So here's Ecclesiastes right in the middle, helping us broker all of the realities of life, moving us, I would say, in, 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 in sometimes disorienting but hopeful way toward the beauty of the fear of the Lord. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember them. So that's, that's where we've kind of gone. Then we, we did um, Chronicles. I wanted to, if I ever sort of wrote something on Chronicles, I think I'd title it The Beauty of the Boring, right? Um, Chronicles is hard, it's kind of boring in some ways, but it ends, the book of Chronicles ends with the king of Persia releasing the, the exiles back into the land with the hope that the Davidic promise of, for David and his progeny is now making itself manifest in Israel's history. So how does Chronicles end? It ends with a claim that what God promised He is still making good on, even through all the complexity of the past 70 years of our existence. I'm thinking in those terms, I think, now. Maybe this is middle life stuff. Uh, But it's generational concerns. It's the next generation. It's those that will take on the mantle for the future. That's where Chronicles leaves us. We went through 70 years of the wilderness again, but now we know that God's promises are true and they will remain true for our children and our, the children of their children in the future. All right. So that was, that was review, um, which didn't took way longer than I wanted to. I, I wanted to end with this and then, then a couple of comments. Um, the whole book of the writings begins with Psalm 1. Now, that's worth reflecting on. Psalm 1 starts us on this whole long trajectory in the writings. And how does Psalm 1 begin? How blessed is the man. How blessed is the person. The smile of God rests on those who dot, dot, dot. And what's the dot, dot, dot? They don't walk. They don't stand. They don't sit with ungodliness. They, they see it, they see ungodliness for what it is. They've learned to grow a distaste for that which sets their own affections and temperament over against God and His Word. They, they see the dangers there. There's dragons down this, this line here. If I'm walking, standing, and sitting with those whose very existence exudes a standing over against God and His kingdom, there's danger there. Not blessedness, not happiness, not joy. There's danger there. And what's the opposite of it? But those who delight in the Word of the Lord uh, and meditate on it day and night, they're going to be like trees that are by the riverbanks and they're always bearing their fruit in the proper season. Now again, this is one of the reasons why I like the writings. A lot of the Psalms that you will read in the book of Psalms that struggle with life, like Psalm 73, Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart, verse 1. Verse 2, But as for me, my foot had almost stumbled when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. A lot of the the internal tensions that you feel in the writings between what we confess to be true and the reality of our lived experiences are an internal wrestling with the claims of Psalm 1. I, I can almost read Psalm 73, Asaph, middle of the Psalter, struggling with the reality of his world as uh, in, in this way. Hey God, I tried Psalm 1, and it doesn't seem to be working out. And I think that there's some of that there. 
Now, the promises of Psalm 1 are true, and they orient us, but it, again, doesn't release us from the internal struggles that we have through our existence as we wrestle with it. Nevertheless, Psalm 1, basic principle. I mentioned this in my sermon in, in, this, in, the, in the refectory last week. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about this recently, this, the, the importance of returning to first principles. Um, I had a student of mine, a for, former student that's now... Um, a canon theologian at, 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 uh, at the church where Leslie Hausman came from in Texas. Um, he was in my office the other day. It's kind of one of those amazing moments where the, the, the teacher becomes the student. I, I was just like, you talk, I'll listen. Um, just a lot of wisdom coming. And he said, here, here I am, PhD freshly in, in hand. I'm a canon theologian in this church. And what I'm doing is a catechizing of the people um, on basic principles like the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed, and the books of the Bible, and helping them think through what it means to, to be a Trinitarian. And he said, you know, and I, I felt this, it was a challenge to me personally, you know, as, and some of you are like this too, as academic people, you're always kind of wanting to know what's around the, what's around the corner that I need to know, what, what's the new thing around the corner? But what's the, where's the exciting conversation going on now? I want, I want to be a part of that. And here was my student, like, you know, that, that, that can be... Um, that can be uh, um, a distraction, uh, going back to first principles. And I've, I've wrestled with that a lot. So, so what, what, why is Psalm 1 a first principle basic kind of thing? Because Psalm 1 tills the soil of the writings and says, Here, here's, here's what the field needs to look like before you even start planting seeds of faithfulness in light of the law and the prophets. And what is it? Their delight... And their, and their thinking apparatus is given to God's Word all the time. Of course, we know we fall short of this, and we're so thankful that Jesus did all of this for us in faithfulness and releases us from the tyranny of the law's accusation. But the freedom of it is to live into the beauty of what was promised, meditating and reflecting and viewing the world through the lens of God's Word. Calvin talked about the word being like glasses that help us bring things into perspective. I, I heard a German theologian, uh, Gerhard Sauter, take it a step further and say, no, here's a better than that. The, the, um, the word of God, the Torah of God, his instruction is actually the retina of our eye that allows us to see. Not just to bring it into focus, but allows us to see the world. So here you have Psalm 1 inviting us back to the law of the Lord. And then you go to the end of the writings, and here's Ezra the scribe. And how is Ezra the scribe described in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10? He loved God's word. He gave himself to God's word. He wanted to be instructed in God's word. In Isaiah 2 and Micah chapter 4, in the final days when the nations are streaming to Mount Zion, why are the nations streaming to Mount Zion? Because they want to be taught God's Word. We're we're, we're all religious by nature. And this is a hard thing for us to kind of parse through. But we're, we're all, as a product of the fall, religious people. In the sense that we're kind of left to our own devices and want to do ritualized kind of things to appease the gods. You know, if I can just do some things here or there, maybe toss a few coins in the plate, this, this stuff has been with the church for a long time as well, then I'm, then I'm kind of doing what I'm supposed to do. Um, and here you have the writings 
Ezra and Psalm 1 in conversation with one another, letting us know that we're really not our best resource when it comes to our religious instincts. We need something outside of ourselves, namely the revelation of God. Christianity and its history and its future rises and falls on the confession that we believe God has spoken and is speaking. Otherwise, we'll be turning to our own experience. Otherwise, we'll be turning to our own instincts to sort through complex issues. And we've got enough of the history of the world behind us to know those those instincts lead to a disastrous end. And here we have the writings opening up a fence for us and saying, come come into this pasture land here and enter into the space of God's revealed will and character. Because this is where real joy is. You want to be happy? Want to be blessed? Then follow ye in this this way here. So Lord, we're grateful um, for these books that hard to kind of locate and place all of them. They like little gemstones and a on a ring. Yet each one in their own way attests to something rather profound, O oh Lord, about you and your ways with us. That you want us to turn toward you, knowing that you've turned toward us in your word. And we ask that by your spirit you do that in our midst. We're all given toward nominalism. We all are given to the status quo. But I pray, Lord, that you'll make us men and women of courage and hope. That you'll make us um, um, non-risk averse. And that we, would, that we would open our hearts and our minds to, to you. And to the hope that you may do something most profound in our midst. And open up our hearts and our minds, O oh Lord, to want to be taught and instructed in your ways. Knowing, O oh Lord, that as resistant as it may be, as we may be, that this is the path, Lord, toward true happiness and true joy. Would you do that in our midst, O Lord? Would you do it in our own hearts and in our families, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.